Hi, this is Mike Mignola. Yo, this is Greg Capullo, man. Hi, I'm Tony Moore. Hi, this is Kerry Nord. This is Ryan Stegman, and you're listening to An Elegant Weapon. An Elegant Weapon. An Elegant Weapon. An Elegant Weapon. An Elegant Weapon is brought to you by Nemesis Studios. An Elegant Weapon for the more civilized age. An Elegant Weapon, episode 198. My name is J.J.M. Clark, J. the Jedi Ross. It is wonderful to be here back with you again. Very quickly, I might add, as you may have caught over the weekend, our free comic book day special, which was very cool. We chatted with Stephanie Line and Adam Gorham, all the way down from Altered States, comics in beautiful Clarkson, Ontario. L5J, what, what? This week, kids, it's our last show before we head into Motor City Comic Con. That's right, coming up next weekend will be there. An Elegant Weapon for the first time uh, is a guest, which is just mind-blowing. Thank you so much to Motor City Comic Con for bringing us in. Uh, it's our third year in attendance, first year as a guest, and I'm very, very honored to be so. So quite looking forward to uh, Motor City Comic Con and seeing all those grand, wonderful people out there in Michigan. So... In accordance, this week, I feature a guest that I first met at Motor City Comic Con. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dirk Manning. Of course, the writer and creator of the Tales of Mystery. Uh, The Kickstarter going on right now. A crazy, crazy successful Kickstarter, as you'll hear. But I'll leave that all to Dirk and myself to tell you about. So I won't get into too much blibbity-blabbity-blab this week. Ladies and gentlemen, episode 198 of An Elegant Weapon uh, with the Lord of Darkness, the man in black himself, uh, Cthulhu's own boy, and uh, yours. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dirk Manning. Mr. Dirk Manning, welcome back to An Elegant Weapon. Happen, sir thank you sir i am very very excited to be back it's been too long since we've got to talk it's been a little while man it's uh it's been rolling along i mean we chatted it up of course at c2e2 which was a hell of a good time yeah. uh we didn't actually get much podcasting done there but uh no that that was fine i mean you were i, I was busy hooking you up with all kinds of other people to interview <laughs> i knew that our time would come which is always greatly appreciated <laughs> i always got time for you sir <laughs> It's mutual, my friend. Good times. Um, we're getting up there, man. This is uh, 198. Oh, see, my timing was a little better. <laughs> I landed on 200, but there's there's other people probably more worthy of the. Well, I think you you still might uh, you still might get a little piece of that action because uh, the way things are coinciding with uh, Motor City Comic Con, it usually ends up being at least a two parter for me. So, and why not my 200th episode be a big shebang to do at such a wonderful event as Motor City Comic Con, right? Yes. So, uh, in fact, I'm hoping, because uh, Mr. Mike Zapsik is there with Ming Chen, Mm -hmm. and uh, he was on my 25th episode and my 100th episode. Right, right. So I'm hoping to get a chance to chat with Mike again, which uh, which should be doable. And uh, you know, he's yeah. like he's like my every every century Mike Zapsic can drop by. <laughs> right, he's your milestone <laughs> guest. Yeah, totally. It's awesome. Good times. So, uh, how was your free comic book day? Oh, it was good. Um, was down uh, in Hilliard, Ohio, just outside of Columbus at Pack Rat Comics, and uh, I'm to a point where I get invited a lot of places to free comic book day. Uh, 
you know, all, all across the, the place. And, um, you know, I always go back to Hilliard, Packrat Comics, and I tell people this loudly and proudly because when I was first, my first ever comic book signing was at Packrat Comics in Hilliard. And I just had like maybe like one little self-published book out. I think maybe like one nightmare world little thing or something. And, uh, they were just so good to me and they were so nice and they treated me so professionally and so well. And they just had a little store and, you know, I was a little creator and, and I told How them. How did that uh, happen? Did you approach them to do that? Or? Um, actually it was, uh, I had a friend who was a comic creator in Columbus. And uh, she brought it up that maybe we do a co-signing together because she did scary stuff as well. I'm like, right on, you know. So we both went down there and did the signing, and uh, they were just awesome. They were so I think she actually is one that set it up. Uh, but they were just really awesome to me. And I, and I told them, I said, this doesn't mean anything to you right now, but I will always come back. And they're like, right on, right on. And I said, you guys were just so good. I mean, they were just <laughs> over the top nice. Jamie and Teresa, just, just, just virtue of the kind of people they are and uh, then what that's become is now every year since i i gosh i, I couldn't even tell you i mean however long it's been <laughs> how long has that shop been around uh well i i think we figured it out i think i've been signing there now every at least once a year for about between 10 and 13 years damn yeah they actually uh packer comics just won the eisner uh spirit of retailer award last year Right on. Yeah, yeah. See, I love to hear that stuff because, like, my, my my LCS here, Altered States, mm-hmm. and these two brothers just been running this shop for 26 years, and it's just a comic shop. You know, like, they've brought yeah. in toys as the demand has changed and, you know, sure. the upgrade and geek culture, but down to the heart of it, these are just two brothers slinging comics. It's always been that way, and it just feels like it always will, and I, I just love that. No flash, no pizzazz, like just just books, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and, and Packrat, it's interesting. They've actually um, moved into a lot of uh, board gaming and stuff as well, because a lot of the people there like to play board games, and it really uh, builds a sense of community, like you said, kind of in uh, what we know as the geek culture, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do a lot of board gaming there, uh, a lot of family friendly stuff there. I live streamed a video on Facebook from there yesterday. It's like they have a bouncy house set up and like the jou- <laughs> like the, the jousting, you know, like the big uh, the big uh, Q-tip looking things. And they had a- yeah. it's a big deal now, eh? Like it's yeah. like even on Facebook, like like every other post is about someone at somewhere for free comic book day. It's a beautiful thing. It is, and it's a nice chance for stores to, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, have an excuse to have someone in. You know, bring in some local creators or some not so local creators, you know, and, and just promote comics. And, uh, it, it's funny because I, I think when Free Comic Book Day first started, um, I was, I was skittish about doing the signings on Free Comic Book Day because one, I really didn't think it was free. <laughs> and, uh, I can't travel like that just to give stuff away. But then two, um, because my stuff's not necessarily all, all ages friendly, you know, um, Right. It's not, you know, because it is a big family but, day thing. Yeah. yeah. But but with Packrat, and, and I think just as a, as a culture, people have really gotten into the fact that, oh, and here's the people that make comics, you know, and, and now there's people that travel from all over just to go see me at Packrat Comics on Free Comic Book Day, you know, and so it's just, and people go there on Free Comic Book Day going to spend 
money and, and invest in the creators that are there, you know, and support their work. So, oh, you have to. Yeah, that's, that's it, the whole it, point. Yeah. It, it, it's it's I was thinking about kind of what you were saying, you know, uh, yesterday. Uh, I was thinking about this how it's just become such a a milestone in our culture, you know, in regard to the comic book culture and the geek culture, and uh, just really, really cool. What's uh, what's your shop? Oh gosh, I uh, <laughs> I have several shops that I try to support. Depending, like, on... do you have a poll somewhere? Uh, I do have I do have a poll. I, I have a very dear friend who I make it a point to go see uh, as often as possible, even if it's not about comics, just to hang out with him. Sure. Um, but I also make it a point, like when I'm a pack rat, I buy stuff at Pack Rat. When I go to Chris Brown's Comics and more, uh, Sean's Anime and Comics, uh, Koi's Comics up in Saginaw, you know, there's there's all these different shops that it's like if I go, they support me, I'll make it a point to go there and uh, and support them. Right. So Ohio's good for shops. They got a, they got plenty to choose from. Ohio's good for shops. Michigan's great for shops. Uh, yeah, the whole Midwest, man, is, is saturated. It's funny. I, I you know I grew up in Toledo. Uh, which is about an hour south of Detroit. And I always tell people about, you know, my hometown. Toledo has had historically four comic shops at any one time. They always have four. Right. Minimum. You know. So, you see, I hear that and, you know, it's, I, I understand how, like, generally across America, what I've seen on the average of most people I've talked to or at least heard is, uh, you know, some areas are good and some are really hard. Like, I've heard from some people they got to drive two hours just to find right. a comic shop. But here, I'm in this situation, I can name you six shops right now within a half hour drive of me. Like, right. we are ridiculously spoiled around here. And, you know, I, I feel for people when I hear like, you know, no, man, I got to I got to go hours to get my comics or. Well, yeah. And it's interesting, too. Like, I think of a shop that's in a little bit more rural Ohio, uh, Rupp's Comics in Fremont. Uh, when Chris Rupp's a great human being, another guy that, you know, I try to go to shop at least once a year. Wonderful human being. I don't think I've ever really met anybody that could ever say anything bad about Chris Rupp. He's just a great human being. Right and uh, he, he started a shop. Years and years and years ago, in this little burb, like little Fremont, Ohio, just this tiny little town, but he actually kind of in a way not only built his audience in that town, that he's become like an institution in the town. If that's the comic shop where we go there, we get comics, but also just done really well for himself, I think, on a national level, working with, you know, Michael Turner back in the day and now Alex Ross and things like that. But he, but he loved comics, uh, loves comics. He invested in that in his town, which no disrespect to any of the people of you know Fremont, Ohio, but didn't have a lot going on, you know. Sure, it's a movie theater, and you know it's kind of like a small town Americana town, and that's fine. yeah. It was he took a shot. It was risky. Yeah, and and does very very well, and uh, that's great to hear though yeah. that there are these areas that can sustain that much business. You know, that's right. that's that's so good to hear. If you if you if you build a clientele and you're good to your clientele, and you, you, you know that's I think that's half the battle is just the fact that you know support good product and support the people that come in, let people know you're there, be good to people. Uh, and, and yeah, you, you'll do okay. I mean, does the direct market continue to have its challenges for shop owners and creators and everybody else? Well, of course it does. But at the end of the day, if it's a way to bring people into the medium of comic books and, and expose them to it and, and support stuff that's good, that's, that's powerful. And, and, and my hat, my tip of my imaginary hat, anybody and everybody <laughs> that, uh, that does that. 
Well, I've observed this interesting thing that's gone on because there was a lot of worry and a lot of talk about how, you know, comic book cinema pretty much kind of, you know, really beat down comic books themselves. You know, people haven't been buying. But then in a way, indie had to so step up for itself and saw an opportunity because of technology and the way you can get things out there. You know, indie in itself has been growing. And now indie kind of going through television and movies itself is kind of helping, I think, bring back people to actually buying books, things like Walking Dead and Preacher. And people are like, oh, that was a comic? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it seems to be uh, more of a, you know, more of a, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. It's more unified, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, well, and it's interesting because, you know, I've been I've been brainstorming pretty hard and pre-gaming and kind of doing a lot of outlining for, um, for Right or Wrong Volume 2. And I think one of the things I'm going to, which is going to be about kind of the, the, the sequel to the first book, which is about, here's everything I can tell you about making a comic. Now that you are to a point where you can make a comic, what do you do now that you have a book? And one of the things I think I'm going to talk about in Right or Wrong 2 is, is this idea of the, the term indie comics. And the term indie comics is one that I really have, uh, feelings about. <laughs> I'll leave it at that because, you know, I think at least from the generation I came up in, indie usually means stapled books on paper that are of maybe not very rich and lush quality. Right, right. And I'm not saying they're not bad. There's some really great books like that. And I and God knows I started doing very, very simple, you know, comics that all I could afford, you know. But I but I think there's also I think what a lot of people say indie, I think what a lot of people maybe mean to say or we should start training ourselves to say and this shows my bias, but so be it. It'll be my book, so I can be biased. On it. <laughs> is a uh, is creator owned, you know? Right, right. Because, or even I mean, more like self published, because indie. Yeah, you're right. right. It's definitely more of a gray area these creator days. Creator owned. Right, yeah, exactly. Right. You know, I mean, uh, Walking Dead is a creator owned book. Uh, you know, things like that. Uh, I don't know the fine details of the contract with with Preacher, but that's definitely very much a creator driven book in the sense that Garth Ennis. And uh, Steve Dillon, by and large, did everything with it. And there is no Preacher product without Garth Ennis writing it. Right. That's a creator-driven book, you know, or your creator-owned books like Walking Dead or like, you know, stuff I do, Tales of Mystery and Nightmare World. So you kind of distinguish between creator and publisher there. Like there's yeah. more indie publishers than indie creators sort of thing. Well, uh, not so much publisher as much as uh, ownership. You right. know, uh, Spider-Man, Captain America, all this stuff. Those are... I mean, and I don't mean this disparagingly, and I probably have to find a less harsh term for this or at least come to terms with this term myself. They're corporately owned comics. Oh, yeah. That's that's just plain fact. Right. Yeah, and, that, and, that, and that, again, that's not meant to be disparaging. But the fact of the matter is this is a this is a, a Mickey Mouse type thing. This is a thing where there are these cultural icons. You know, I mean, the fact that Captain America is now a cultural icon blows me away. I remember when yeah. Captain America was like, a D-list character, and Iron Man's a D-list character, and everybody that knows the history of this stuff. Knows. Oh, Avengers were cheese, man. <laughs> if that, they, they weren't even cheese whiz, you know. I mean, it, yeah. they were just kind of like the ghetto, you know. Yeah. But anyone that knows their history knows about how Marvel had to push hard and banked everything on Iron Man to make him a good character. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. was down in the dumps in his career. Yeah. You know. Oh, that's all John Favreau making those choices and right. fighting for Robert Downey Jr. They were, writing, yeah, yeah. they were writing that damn script the night before in the trailer, you know, and had some <laughs> of the comic book writers secretly there doing it. This was yeah. Marvel's Hail Mary, 
and they knocked it out of the park. And now the fact that Marvel has bounced back and become this juggernaut, and for God's sake, we have Guardians of the Galaxy movie, yeah. Doctor Strange coming out and all this stuff. It's yeah. fantastic and it's wonderful. But at the end of the day, those are, are, are corporately owned comics and they're pushing a, a corporate property, which is fine, because those corporations pay creators to make money to make comics. But then the flip side of that, getting back to what you were stating, is then if we continue – I really hope we continue to not only put a focus on the characters – because you can tell great stories about Captain America. You can tell great stories about Batman and, and, and Superman and Spider-Man. And they're all archetypes and Iron Man. But what we then also need to do is, okay, who's the one that wrote these great stories? And do they have stories of their own that they want to tell? And maybe we should support them too. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. Isn't it, isn't it strange though that one dude – Maybe a couple dudes, but basically, you know, everybody kind of pegs it on Stan Lee's head. But with the guys he worked with and Jack Kirby and, you know, that little core. But basically out of this one guy's head is created such dominant ideas and characters that it has become for decades so hard to live up to the level that he created these characters at. Like, (laughs) you know, they are so embedded in us that you're totally right like you know people i think people should almost give up like stop trying to write cap and you know somebody's got to eventually come up with something as good as stan lee did like it's got to be possible but it, it amazes me that this guy left behind not left behind but you know created such a legacy mm-hmm. that people are still dealing with the consequences of it in the industry to this day well and, and it's interesting because it's genius and it's simplicity and, uh, you know, and, and you, I'm not going to go down the whole road of how much of it was Stan Lee and how much of it wasn't because, you know, obviously you look at guys like Ditko and Kirby and stuff like That's that. That's why I say. Yeah, there's, there's a little, course, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're going to just kind of, you know, dodge that bullet for now. But what I will say, right. the simplicity of the, of the, of the Marvel characters and their popularity comes down to the philosophy behind them. And that's feet of clay. You know, they all, are flawed characters, and they all play to an archetype. Spider-Man is the nerdy kid who secretly is really awesome, but no one knows it. Yeah. So many people can identify with that. You know, Captain America, and it's interesting, has kind of been redefined through the cinematic universe as the the old soul who holds on to classic, un, unarguable values. Right. Inarguable values. There's an archetype for that. You know, uh, Iron Man is the guy that was kind of the creep who um, who turned around and now has dedicated his life to, uh, you know, to penance, for lack of a better word, you know, to making the world a better place based on a recognition of the mistakes he made in the past. These are very, mm-hmm. like, Jungian archetypes. And even DC back in the day had that as well. You know, Superman was the, was the immigrant story. And, and Batman was the person that took tragedy and, and dedicated his life to, you know, turning, you know, lemon, uh, lemons into lemonade. And, and it's the reason that, <laughs> yeah. and I say this all the time, it's the reason that for years, um, he did, Batman became the pinnacle of human perfection motivated by a tragedy, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and, but it's the reason that for many years, Wonder Woman suffered greatly because there was no archetype model that really resonated with her because the the origin of Wonder Woman was she's a woman in a man's world. Right. But right. that doesn't isn't relevant anymore. And even through the cinematic universe, Superman's been reimagined because the immigrant story doesn't resonate anymore. 
And, and, you know, guys like Grant Morrison years ago talked about the fact of looking at uh, Superman through more of the, the, the Jesus model. He's basically a son of God, for lack of a better word, who has come here and has the ability to save us, but how is he going to choose to do it? Mm-hmm. That's the cinematic Superman. Mm-hmm. It went. It turned from like just a, a physical hero who's just there to save the day to you know a world where it has to be introspective now. There's no other way to try and figure it out. You know, like, right? Do you just go take out a dictator in a third world country? What does that right. mean? What then? <laughs> you know, so yeah. But but you have to have it based in these 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 archetypes. You know, and even then comics like uh, you know the creator owned comics and creator driven comics like uh, like Walking Dead and stuff like that. They they resonate. Because they they cut they boil down to a, a central theme or a central question that people can identify with. You know, I, I look at the Walking Dead TV show, and uh, it talk about the fact that you know, watching the TV show, everyone wants to think they'd be Rick, but most people would be Shane. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, trip trip the overweight guy. You know, or I mean, you know, that just you're really Christ. I'd be Otis probably. Right. <laughs> You know, and it was interesting because you know you brought up, uh, you know, yesterday I got to see the uh, the season premiere of uh, Preacher at a, at a special, you know, uh, screening. After yeah, the what was day. that like? And uh, <laughs> that this whole this whole discussion we're talking about, you know, was kind of like in my mind about Preacher is one of my favorite comics, and Preacher is a comic that really paved the way for a whole new generation of comic book creators, myself included. But I was like. How is this going to translate and how is this going to resonate with the mass market audience? Right. And uh, I'll tell you, man, one episode in, uh, they, they're nailing it. They're really boiling that that comic. They took the comic, boiled it down to the essence of what it's about, and now we're kind of repackaging it and pushing it forward in a way that's respectful to the book, but also uh, ever, everyone's going to have a favorite character real quick. Okay. Yeah, that's the tough part is reaching the masses. You know what I mean? Like, I think, I think, you know, there was people weren't sure if Walking Dead would do well, but I mean, hopefully it would just, you know, at least get itself renewed every year. But it becoming the biggest show on TV, that's, I would have never guessed that it would reach such a mass market, as you're saying. Like, really? That many people can find something to dig on that show is, it's crazy. They only gave the first season six episodes. Mm -hmm. You're like, "Ah, well, yeah, yeah. We'll try. (laughs) Yeah. But it shows like once, yeah, once something works, you got to roll with it. Like you're saying, Marvel's had this juggernaut forever because they found a formula. It works and they just expand off that formula. Right. And, you know, it, it's, it can be basic in a lot of ways, but it's just brilliantly woven. Did you see Civil War? I I will. I have not yet. I'll be seeing it tomorrow because I've been, you know, on the road all uh, weekend with free comic book day and stuff like that. So. Right. It's completely without spoiling it. It's got a little bit of every... my friend. Yeah, no, it's got a little bit of every Marvel movie you've seen. Right. Okay, good enough. Good enough. It pulls so many ideas. It's really, it's really cool. And, you know, inevitably there's a lot of comparison to the Batman Superman situation. Sure. Which, which I think that was kind of the opposite of the problem. I think that should have been a movie that should have reached a mass audience, you know. Never mind, everybody just saw it because it was Batman Superman. But as far as people not getting it or understanding it, they didn't they didn't try for people to. Do you know what I mean? And that was probably the biggest mistake they made as far as a big budget movie was not paying enough attention to pleasing everybody in a little way, right? Well, and it's interesting too because 
you know, with, with Superman, Batman, everyone came out of that movie raving about how good Ben Affleck was as, as Batman. And conversely, then you had a lot of people saying, well, that's not my Batman. That's not my Superman. Right. And it's like, no, but it was a Batman and a Superman. I'm not, yes. I'm not particularly invested in, in DC's, um, continuity cinema, cinematically or otherwise. You know, I'm just, I, I just, I'm the guy that's just, I, because I don't have that emotional, visceral connection to these characters when I was like five years old. Like, just tell sure. me a good story. You know, it's why right, I raved about, right. uh, Scott Snyder's Batman. It was like, these are just good stories. You know, they're just really well yeah. done. You know, uh, oh, do, yeah. do I like the fact that they suddenly kind of like de-aged Batman a little bit and all this stuff? Whatever. Just, it's a good story. Once you get past that, it's fine. It, but the, the DC movies in my mind almost are like Elseworld stories. <laughs> you know, because sure, yeah. here's like the angry, bitter Batman who just gives no fucks at this point. Yeah. He does not. He's done. And, yeah, well, and, and they communicate that clearly. And Affleck owned the role. And then you got distant, then you got cautious, distant, alien, borderline autistic Superman who is who I love. And he they do not give enough credit to this, that Superman is an alien. And that's why he is detached from everything. But I think of this right. in that movie when and this spoils. Zero for anyone that hasn't seen it. But there's a scene when he walks into a court, the, 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 the hearing. And just the way he holds himself and he's looking around and just even the way he breathes. I mean, it was just phenomenal cinema and phenomenal acting because he's not this big jacked up dude, but like, not like a pro wrestler, you know, but his under muscle and just his presence and just... The way he stood there, it just it just exuded. I am not one of you. And right, yeah. And, and now, did they miss the marker on the idea of Batman being human and Superman being an alien, and that's why they're fighting? Eh, Wonder Woman kicked ass. That was nice. They re, they rejuvenated Wonder <laughs> Woman without hardly giving her any any dialogue. Yeah. You know, it's like. Well, how much do you think uh, a viewer or reader should be expected to have to read into something? Like, does it need to be set up in the, in the beginning of the story that this is how deep you're going to have to go? For instance, my example, which I'm going to have to spoil a little, but is when the Martha moment. And I know everyone is making fun of the fact that they stopped fighting because they their mother had the same name. Which which I think geeks are just mad. No one ever picked up on that. But anyway. That's not how I saw it in any way. This is how I saw it. His very last image of his father was lying there dying saying the word martha it wasn't just that they were martha and made a point that they were oh we have the same mom to yeah. me when he saw superman lying there and said that word it wasn't just oh we've got the same name mother it was he had an instant flash of his own father dying under his own foot uttering that yeah word. yeah and I mean? that's a, it, that's how i saw it did i did I look deeper than most would bother or should have been expected to? Um, you know what I mean? Maybe, you know, uh, it, it's hard to say, but but here's the thing, you know, I'm going to bring this to my, my own work for a second, you know, like with Tales of Mystery, I have this big, giant story and this big theme and these big ideas and big themes, plural, I guess, I, I want to tell in the series, but I also knew that it's like, to do it the way I wanted to do it, I couldn't come right out of the box and say... Let's talk about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, that's, that's not necessarily a, right. a, 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 what I wanted people to, to recognize as the basis of Tales of Mystery. Or let's talk about what post-traumatic stress disorder would look like on a global level. 
or let's talk about what it would be like, you know, you know, to be the last man alive on earth who knows the truth of what's going on, all these different things. So right. I, I think whenever you endeavor in something creatively, you have to just make the decision to own your approach and say what you will uh, of Zack Snyder. He owns his approach. Shit. You know, he owns the man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it. It's like, hey, this is – they've hired me to make the movie. I am making the movie that they are they, – they hired me because of who I am. I'm going to make the kind of movie I make. And if you right. don't like it, yeah. don't go see it. You know. Yeah, there's plenty of evidence that it's going to be just like the rest of the ones I made. Like, don't be surprised. Right. Like, <laughs> we haven't seen that touching romantic romantic comedy from uh, Zack Snyder or something <laughs> like that, you know. But that's... Man, uh, just quickly, just Dawn of the Dead was on the other night. Yeah. And I, I was, I just, I hadn't seen it in a while, and I was like, yeah, this is so good. Oh yeah. Like it was so well put together. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Absolutely, but you know, you gotta, you have to just own your approach. And then, to a certain extent, you have to trust readers that uh, they'll pick up on it. And this is a conversation, again, I'll go take it back to Tales of Mystery that I had with uh, Josh Blaylock, publisher of Devil's Due, is the first volume of the book is so different than the second volume, which is so different than the third volume. And it's still the same book, and, and, and I just give poor Blaylock fits about this because he's like, the book is good. But it's just almost impossible to market because you can't say, well, it's this thing because it is this thing. But then it becomes this thing and it becomes this thing. But it's still the same thing. But there's an underlying core to it. And and really, when we were working on volume three, we had these discussions about, okay, we're three volumes into this series and it's all really good. But what's the hook? What do we tell people just to get them to 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 motivate, to let that to motivate them to decide whether or not they want to pick this up and invest in the series, you know? It, it's a risky thing to do when you when you're switching it up because a lot of people find a formula and if it works, of course they they stick with it and right. it doesn't. Sometimes it works out to keep things new and fresh and sometimes you know yeah. sometimes it doesn't work at right. all. I think in your case when you're getting up to volumes three and four, you know, there's obviously an audience who doesn't mind following the story wherever it's well, going. Well, the the you know respectfully, I'll say the Kickstarter alone su- supports that. Well, Jesus Christ, yeah. Let's talk about that. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's, I, I, don't, I don't mean that. To be like, what was it? What was it? Okay. What was the initial request of fundage? What, what was your Tales role? Mystery Volume 3, which I will yeah. add mercilessly, shamelessly mention, is currently on Kickstarter. Our initial funding goal was $6,666. Of course. Right. Of course. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah, that was our initial. Uh, that was our initial goal. Since you asked, I'll tell you our initial. Three hours after launch, we were funded. <laughs> yeah, and, and thirteen hours after launch, uh, we broke ten thousand dollars in, in pre-sales and in, in pledges. Boom! Boom! Well, someone wants to see it. Yeah, right? it's it's <laughs> it was the the fastest uh, pledged, uh, the fastest funded uh, Devil's Due project of all time. The fastest devil, oh, yeah? the fastest devil do project to crack ten grand. Um, right on. And and don't be wrong, I, I could say this with a certain amount of swagger with you because we're like brothers, but it was humbling, man. <laughs> you know, it was really really humbling, and especially when you have a book that is so good but so different, because it, it's very nerve wracking for publishers for creators. It's like, I'm going to do a book that I really believe in and is really, really strong. 
but is not quite like anything else that's out there. Right. Uh, yeah. But people have responded to it, and they've responded to it in droves. And and big kudos to Devils Do for and Josh Blair for letting me run with this and run the campaigns the way I wanted to and tell the story I want to tell. But it's still nerve wracking, and then it's still so satisfying and so gratifying to see that okay, wow, here we go, and people are yeah. You know, <laughs> it's uh for the you know nice previews that I have been privy to. And uh, it's at my favorite point. I gave him all of three. (laughs) (laughs) The it's at my favorite point. Volume three is easily my favorite. And you know I've been a fan and I've always enjoyed it and I've had fun reading Mister Re. But now I'm finding myself honestly. I'm not just saying it because it's the newest one or anything. It's where you've gone with it that has really keyed me in this time. Yeah. Like the the type of story you're telling right now is my cup of tea. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm loving it. And I don't know if that's, you know, in any way due to other people having seen anything or just wanting more mystery as far as the Kickstarter, you know, having so much success. But just personally, I, it's at my favorite point right now. I'm, I love where you're taking it. So I'm glad you take these, these risks and, you know, try to, try to do something new with the, with, with your same story, you know? Thank you. And it's my, I'm to the point now where I'm finally getting to open up the big story, you know, uh, Tales Mystery Volume 1 was about introducing the character. And really, in media's raw, just go. Here's this guy, and he's in this world where – I tell you the setup of the book, and, and, and Josh and I kind of – to his credit, Josh Blaylock and I kind of summed up the pitch, the convention pitch about hell invades Earth for three days, and then it just stops. And everyone wants to go, okay, that was pretty horrible, but those of us that made it, we're going to be fine. We can move ahead again, and society will be okay. Well, Mystery's a magician who knows there's still monsters and uh, demons left. And and quite frankly, that's that's a message that people don't want to hear. You know, <laughs> like, no, yeah. we, we survived, we're done, they're gone, we're moving on. And in the event that you can't toe that line, um, some society might have a pretty ugly backlash for you. <laughs> and that, and that's, that was kind of the setup for Volume 1. Well, then in Volume 2, which we did as a four-issue miniseries and then collected, it's it's actually back in previews right now after our Kickstarter for Volume 2 last year, is all about kind of the origin of mystery. Where did this – how did this guy get to be the person he is? And, and, and what did mystery do during the three days of darkness that made him who he is now? Right. And it's a dark book. You know, you know someone told me, and I, I use this tagline all the time, probably to my detriment, it's one of the best books you'll ever read about children being systematically murdered. <laughs> but it's a dark – It's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, that, that's oh, yeah. the best worst tagline ever. Uh, yeah. Well, that's what part of what I like of where he is now is that you're using the fact that we already know exactly. him as as a story element. You're using – you're using that as plot points and, you know, some cool little, I don't want to say Easter egg, but just tiny little, you know, moments in the story that you have to, you know, that are relying on the fact that, you know, you know his reputation. Yeah, right? well, it, in volume one, people really got to know this guy through action and through how he reacted to circumstances. And really, 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 anybody that reads mystery, tells mystery volume one, tend to fall in love with the character, which is wonderful because – he, he he's not an easy character. Let me refer, he's not a simple character. He's very complex, but people mm-hmm. just kind of fall in love with him. Whether it be a man crush or 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 a 
woman crush, I guess. <laughs> well, he's an interesting he character, is. you know? He is. And, and I, I say that like he's his own autonomous person from me because he is, you know. But then in volume two, like you said, you get to really know him and know what he's about and know why he is the way he is. And it's almost like the Daryl Dixon effect. You know, it's like, wow, this guy has had some, had some heavy shit happen, you know. Right. Yeah. And then you get to volume three and we're, and here we are. And here he is, and we start to open up this big world of Volume 3, and we really start to introduce more of the Promise group and the supporting cast more and uh, kind of, you know, some of the big bads of the series, you know, uh, through, 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 who we've right. hinted at before, Dumashine Enterprises and things like that. And, and then you got the Promise group who everyone has a different take on how to go ahead with this situation. And, and uh, yeah, so this is kind of the, the story. Volume 3 really – encapsulates the series moving forward and really if you would think about this like traditional comic book issues by the end of volume three we're only about nine twelve or thirteen issues into the series right you know, so you think two story you know you know i mean even those three volumes so yeah we're to the point where kind of the end of closing the end of like year one of a, if we did a traditional publishing, <laughs> a publishing schedule Right, right. The further the the further you go with it, does it does it kind of take on a, a life of its own, or do you find that you're having to you know use more imagination for your story? Do you know what yeah, I mean? Like, um, does it write itself at this point? To an extent, I have touchstone things that are going to happen. I know exactly how the series ends, and I know right. there. Which you've said in the past. That's why I ask. But do you find, since he has almost become his own autonomous like uh-huh. character, do you does that ever screw with your plans as you're going? To along? an extent, um, mystery is, in my mind, a very predictable character about what he will do in any situation. The 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 unpredictably comes in from the fact that what are the situations going to be? that happen as a result of all these other pieces in play. Volume three, I kind of say I set the board. I finished setting the board so everyone can see, okay, you got Dumashine Enterprises over here. You got Thelma Lushkin and William, and you got who's really in charge of Dumashine, who I'm not going to spoil. Then you got Charity, and you got the Promise Group, and then you got Ganon, who, again, is one of my favorite characters. I'm so glad I finally got to introduce him because he's an interesting character. Then you got Brad Thompson over here. You get this Brad Thompson character and what he's going to be doing and what the hell is his agenda and what's going on there. So you got all these moving parts, these big cogs in this big machine. And then if you picture a conveyor belt in re going right into it. So he, he, he's on a pretty straight path, but, um, even as I've been free writing volume four and kind of bouncing some stuff off of Seth Moose, who's going to be drawing volume four, uh, to me, I, I know the story. I know where it's going. But the question is going to be, yeah, how's Ree going to react? And then how are these other characters going to bounce off each other? So there's a certain amount of uh, spontaneity in it. But right. just like time marches on, the story marches on. And there are certain events that are going to happen in this series that are just going to happen. It's inevitable. Because of A, there will be B. Because A and B happen, there will be a C. But there's definitely a certain amount of very interesting spontaneity, and I've even found myself in these situations where, oh, wow, at some point, uh, Brad Thompson and Gannon, for example, are going to meet. Wow. What's that going to be like? <laughs> you know? Okay. So, yeah, All so right. there's a certain yeah. amount of spontaneity there, but but time marches on, and uh, there, there's a, there's an end point to the series. It's not 
immediately immediate. Right. But uh, you know, you got Faust and Ranibus out there lurking around. Uh, and, and, and Volume Four, which we'll do next year, um, after Nightmare World Four and Love Stories to Die For, uh, is really going to address what I call the Venom paradox uh, from Spider-Man, the Spider-Man villain. If you have a character whose almost sole motivation is to uh, destroy another character, you can't just leave him bouncing around somewhere. You know, right. Ranibus right, right. wants to take out Re now that he escaped, you know, his imprisonment that Ranibus put him in. So it's not yeah. like I can wait five or six story arcs. Relentless, yeah. You know, he's not building some <laughs> yeah. death machine out there, something like that. <laughs> he knows Re is out there somewhere, and he wants to go take him out. And right. uh, so we're going to address that pretty quickly. Begin at that same thing. Okay, so Ranibus is going to go take out Re. How does that play into the fact that Re's working with Brad Thompson and Re's with the Promise Group, and then you got Charity and you got Gannon and you got Doom, you know, all these other stuff going on. So it's going to be exciting, man. I can't wait. And I'm glad people are responding yeah. to it so well. Oh, people are loving it, man. I mean, I can't wait to see what uh, what comes up in the future. I, I mean, you may get screwed. I mean, I don't know how many volumes in your head it will take to get to the end of the story that you figured out, but I don't know. The public may not agree with you. you know? <laughs> well, the, the glory, as I've already demonstrated very early on, is that volume two is by and large a flashback story. Right. Re could not make it past the end of volume four, but I could still tell flashback stories. Oh, so so yeah, no okay, one, no one is you. safe, and I see that. But I'm sure your head must be full of other stuff too. You must have many ideas you want to absolutely, get to. absolutely. In fact, yeah. I was talking to my uh, my buddy Eric Palicki, and he said, "So what do you got coming up next?" And I said, "I got you know, uh, Love Stories to Die For is going to come out this year, uh, a full collection of the five one shots we did with that, and then we got Nightmare World of Volume Four. And uh, he said, "Okay, but that stuff that." By and large, is done and established. What's your new stuff? And I said, well, we've got Revolume 4 is going to be brand new. And then we talked about some other things. So I, I, I certainly have other things I want to push forward and do that are that are brand new. Right. But at the same time, uh, I have a very strong loyalty to Tales of Mystery, both for the sake of the the readers who have been supporting the book, but also because it's just a damn good book and it's a damn good story. Right. But, yeah, there, there are certainly other things I want to do. But I, I can foresee a world very quickly where as long as Re is going to exist – I do a rebook, then another book, then a rebook, then another, at least you know, at least alternate back and forth on that. Um, for a, do you think you'll ever venture very far from horror or thriller? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a horror guy at heart, and, and to me, any story can be a horror story. You know, um, well, yeah, if twisted the yeah, right but, way, but even, sure. Even, you know, even the most to me, even the most romantic love story is a horror story because some sooner or later, one of those people in love is very likely to have to live a life without the other one. <laughs> Fucking goddamn pessimist. <laughs> no, no, it's not pessimism. It's realism. Unless you both yeah, want to blaze yeah. of glory at the same time sure. or die the same moment, holding hands, watching the sun go down. Yeah. <laughs> that's usually, on the that's usually not the way the world works. There's not this great meme. Uh, every love story is a ghost story. Oh, yeah, nice. Like, wow. There it is. So, so to me, even yeah. in telling a straight-up romance, there's an end to that romance, and that's horrifying to me. It doesn't okay. change the journey, and it doesn't change the joy that you get out of it. 
But, uh, you know, J.K. Rowling uh, said it best one of the Harry Potter books, how terrible it is to love something that death can touch. Right. You know, right. I, I am very much, like, everyone's ever read, like, the story I did for Dia Stella Mortis with Riley Rosmo. I have it in me to write a good romance story because I truly am in my heart of hearts a romantic at heart. I really, I mean, people laugh when I, when, when they, when I say that. No, I don't say that. You're a passionate fellow about whatever you're passionate yeah, about. Yeah. You feel romantic about that thing. Yeah, really. it, it even, you know, the Tales of Mystery Volume 3, like, uh, you know, there, there's a scene in Chapter 3 that uh, Austin McKinley drew between Charity and Mr. Ree that is my favorite scene in the whole book, but it's it's very romantic and it's very real and it's very tragic, all within the span of, like, two or three pages, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, do I see myself doing stuff that's not pigeonholed as horror? Um, probably to an extent, but I, I, I want to get to the point where people just recognize that, especially through books like Revolume 3, which is steeped in horror, they're getting a Dirk Manning, and a Dirk Manning means it's going to have I mean, and if that's your jam, and if that's you, there's no reason to ever leave it if you don't well, feel right, like it. Right, you know but if, I mean? but if like, DC... I don't ask you that saying, you know. Right. Do something else. <laughs> what sure. are you, a one-trick pony? Yeah, well, but, I mean, but if DC Comics or Marvel Comics tapped me and said, we want you to write, uh, I don't know, Green Lantern or Quasar or something, I'm not going to be the guy that comes in and, okay. Fucking Quasars. Here comes Cthulhu. <laughs> you know, I mean, that doesn't suit yeah. the property. So I would have to decide, okay, what can I say about these characters? And what I may say about them wouldn't necessarily involve the end of the world or elder gods or, or what have you, or Cthulhu, you know, or whatever it may be. You really just have to find the sure. heart of that story and tell that story. Uh, I just tend to live uh, with my creator own work a little bit in the, that supernatural dark corner that this is kind of where I set up shop. Sure. Did that, is that how it started for you with comics? Like, you know, I don't see someone getting into comics with their first comics being horror comics. Like, just, just out of accessibility. Yeah, well, the first three know? comics I ever, I ever really seriously got into and read were, uh, The Crow by James O'Barr, Watchmen right. by Almore and Dave Gibbons, and The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller. So okay. those are definitely more, I think, mature or darker comics. But then, uh, but then you couple that with the fact that, Media-wise, I was a Twilight Zone baby, and I loved right, the horror right, movies. Yeah. You know, the horror movies of the '80s, you know, and stuff like that. Whether they be yeah. the Friday the Thirteenth or weird one-off horror movies like The Kindred or Motel Hell. I mean, right. that was my jam. You know, and Pyra, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. They could be kind yeah. of funny. So you take all that stuff, and it's a pretty clear line from Little Dirk Manning to professional creator Dirk Manning. When you look at my influences that way, there's no. No question that, that the path I would take, I don't think, in my own creative ventures. Sure, sure. And, like, you, you've, been, you've been a Gaiman fan for a while, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Neil Gaiman is really, really good. And that's, that's you know, he's had some works that could easily be called romantic horror. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, or how about, uh, did you ever read the Vampire Chronicles? Uh, some, not all. Uh, I read I read them all. I loved them to death. Some not as much as others, but that whole series to me that was romantic horror at its oh, finest. To me, yeah. that was yeah. It was it was some stunning storytelling. I, I was a big fan of Anne Rice growing up for sure. She, she definitely is a romantic at heart, and and as you said, she has a passion for the characters, you know. But I but I look at the crows the same way. That that story sure. I talked about this in the first Right or Wrong book, you know, um, in Right or Wrong, a writer's guide to creating comics. I specifically cite The Crow as a book that the passion 
radiates from the page. And the love does, and the angst does, and the pain does. Everything just radiates off the freaking page. And that's why yeah, that yeah. book <laughs> has such a a following. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you just got to... You just got to love what you do and, you know. You know, there was such an uproar when they were talking about remaking The Crow. And I understand not needing to remake The Crow that's been made. But that's the kind of character where there are so many more stories to be told in so many other ways that I would love to see another Crow movie. Sure. You know, but people feel like if they cast another Crow, they're recasting Brandon Lee. It's like, no, pick up a comic book and understand how this works well yeah the crow again has this certain archetype character and archetype type of storytelling and there are very few established properties that i would love to do a story in that universe i would love to be able to do a crow story you know but it wouldn't be about eric draven you know or whatever i mean but let's let's take the idea right. of a crow crosses over and wakes someone up with unfinished business yeah and they even, you know, attempted in the other movies they mm -hmm. made, it wasn't Eric Draven. Right. You know, I think maybe in one of them or the show or something, but. Yeah, I think they were all, I think they know, were they, all different. They were different. I think one was called Ash. Or yeah, something. yeah. And uh, then they had the TV show with the guy from uh, the Iron Chef. Right, guy. right, right. Yeah, they had a bunch yeah. of Stairway to Heaven or whatever it was called. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that that plot, it, 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 that that theme, that 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 concept is just an easy thing to to run with. So they're easily tapped into emotions, revenge, mm -hmm. pain, tragedy. Like you know, people 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 like to see ways of dealing with those kind of things. You know, every so, every story is a love. You know, every love story is a ghost story. That's the crow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, but but that that's the okay. whole thing. You just got to yeah. be passionate about it and, and find it and. Yeah, you know, I mean, find the heart of the story, like I said. So, and if that story is dark and gothic, so be it. But I definitely, you know, despite my tongue-in-cheek profile picture and stuff like that and banner I have at conventions, you know, it's like I never, I never want to become a parody of myself. Like, they put Dirk Manning on sure. this book. Insert tentacles. You know what I mean? It's kind of like you're joking oh, about yeah. it, but I mean, you know, we have to really look at, you know, being – well, that happens to the biggest of the biggest, to the best of the best. You know, J.J. Abrams is one of the greatest filmmakers in history, and he can't live down lens flares to save his life. Right, like, right. <laughs> or, or Zack Snyder, you know, or even, you know, you know. I mean, Neil Gaiman, I think, has fought hard. As much as he embraces the gentlemanly fantasy, fantasy guy, I think he still fights against that to an extent sometimes, too, you know. But well, it's been interesting. I'm about halfway through American Okay. Events. And it's it's not been what I expected. Mm -hmm. uh, I I really really liked maybe the first half of what I've been reading. I've been okay with where I'm at now. Um, I'm hoping it kind of gets interesting again. Yeah. But the 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 beginning like quarter of the book was just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And you know I obviously Sandman and one of the favorite things he ever did was talk about getting inside something. Was he did an episode of Doctor Who. And it was uh, the doctor's the doctor's yeah. wife. It was yeah. called, or the bride of the doctor. Doctor's One of those wife. It was called there's the doctor's wife. Are, yeah, there's similar few similarly named episodes, but you know where the TARDIS got put into like an autonomous woman, yeah. and he was able to experience having this quick relationship with the thing in the universe that means the most to him, and it, it was so well written. It was so. 
it was one of those episodes where it basically all happened in one spot. There was no monsters. There was no running. There was no crazy excitement. It was this, you know, there was a little excitement. It's Doctor Who. But it was this really introspective episode of examining this relationship between these two characters. Because the TARDIS is a character, you, you know, like fully. Yeah. And, oh, I loved that. I loved his work on that. That's what made me want to read American Guts, was I saw that episode and I was like, okay, I'll read American Guts. I, uh, I... My uh, editor, Leah Letterman, uh, I think recently got into American Gods because I've read that one. And we had a pretty uh, interesting discussion about it because I definitely have some, some feelings on that book that I won't divulge to you at this time until you finish it. Right. But uh, sure. it's not my favorite thing he's written. I'll say that. Um, but I just recommended to our mutual friend, uh, the indie huntress, Crystal O'Rourke, uh, Ocean yes. at the End of the Lane, which is a book that haunts me. It was just. I saw you post that yeah. the other day or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw posted, you. She I was asking remember. for a book to read yeah. on Facebook, and I said "Ocean at the End of the Lane" by uh, Neil Gaiman. I mean, I knew that she'd like the book, and she just loved it. it. It's just a fantastic book, and and I finally got on the Doctor Who bandwagon in the last year, and I'm caught up with as far as Netflix went. Um, right yeah, on. yeah. And uh, that was my my elliptical show. You know, get an elliptical, watch Doctor Who. You know. So I'm very interested to see what you think then, because in my opinion, it's some of the best sci-fi writing in the history of television. It, it's, yeah, it's a, it's know. you know, it's a very good show. Um, but it's interesting you talk about the you know, I, I get the hype, you know, um, uh-huh. and, and and Moffat's great, and and then there's just, I mean, I I I think it goes on saying there's dozens of episodes that are just phenomenal television, phenomenal storytelling. But it's interesting with the Doctor's Wife episode because. Uh, I didn't care for that episode as much as I think a lot of people did. I, to me, and I could be bringing my own biases to it. To me, it was just very much a love letter to, uh, to his wife. And it kind of almost took me, uh, it was so, to me, and I, and I could be way wrong here, but to me, it almost was like, it was almost so meta that it took me out of the, the story. But, but. I, I see what you're saying. There's a line I loved. And it almost redeemed, almost redeemed the whole episode for me when the TARDIS, who's in the, the woman's body, says to the doctor, oh, you think – it was something instead of, oh, you think you chose me? Yeah. You know? And I was like, <laughs> that, was, that was cool. Nice. That really – Yeah. Which they very cleverly later on kind of canonized because uh, you're probably not – Yeah, so I'm saying. I'm not well, it won't spoil, but there's a moment where Clara, her, his eventual companion, is running through his all his time streams. Oh, I did see that one, yeah. Yeah, and he was, and they go, they flash back to her with the a very original Doctor, and he's about to steal a TARDIS, and she's like, "No, you want this right, one, right, 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 right." <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it, it was interesting, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. I just it, for me, like I've, I've we've talked in the past about how I'm just like a chronology freak. Yeah. Like I just love time, play, and time. Oh, absolutely. I'm the same. I love. That, I, that's I, why I I'm such a Highlander stories. freak. But that's that's the thing about Doctor Who for me is the interweaving and the pulling tiny little things from literally 30, 40 years ago and making them major plot points today. And I just I can't get enough of that shit. I miss my Highlander so much. <laughs> <You start> crying. <laughs> like. I don't understand it. Like talking, like we're talking about the crow. Talk about like bad '90s television. I've got all six seasons on DVD, and I'll still bust them out because I just can't get enough of the story, the ideas. Like 
I don't watch. I know consciously it's a cheesy television show. It's you know it's low budget. They're kind of you know old cheesy eighties movies. But the idea, just the i the story itself, it just I can't get enough of it. I'm so compelled to know more and experience it that. I'm just I'm dying like somebody please even if it's a remake or a reboot somebody do something because yeah yeah man I miss Connor McLeod like I miss the, the immortals fighting for a reason that you know they kind of killed it in the end because the last movie they made they kind of gave a reason for the prize that was just stupid that he was just like oh you can have babies now and it was like what like, <laughs> womp, 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 that's like womp. lost level disappointment okay that's just ridiculous yeah. it's it's you know. Yeah, well, but but you're right. I mean, you know, and there, there's a lot of power in that in, in respecting the whole story and telling the whole story. It's one of the reasons I love Breaking Bad so much is Breaking Bad tells you in the very first episode the theme of the whole series, you know, right. about change, you know, and how, how things change and, you know, science is the study of change and and, right. and how then the whole series becomes about Walter White changing and how he changed, which any story arc, any story has a character arc. But Breaking Bad I loved because – the story is the character arc and how he just becomes this vastly different person, <laughs> you know, so I think it's right, one of the best right, television right. shows of all time. Is it, you know, I couldn't get into it. I tried a couple episodes. Uh, did you get through, did you get through season my... one? See, no, I, I couldn't do it. Keep, I, I would encourage you to keep going. Uh, I know <sighs> I, I'm just saying if you get to the end of season one, but uh, mind you, I say that as someone that doesn't have much time for television, so I get it. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 I think it's one of the best why. television shows ever made. Maybe I'll give it another shot if I have some yeah, time you someday. Just... But uh, I find myself on a, a strange kick right now of uh, really oddly written comedy. Right. Like like this tragic comedy thing going on. Like have you seen Baskets, no. that Zach Galifianakis no, no. show? He's a clown. And Louis Anderson plays his mother in it. And it's the most depressing, hilarious show you've ever seen. Like, like you want to, you literally want to cry, and then you start laughing at how badly you want to cry. It's, it's a really. There's nothing I've ever seen like it. Like, I'm trying to tell people. Is about it on it Netflix or it was on? Pro- it's on. It, it's not Netflix. It's is it HBO? Okay. I think it. I think it might be HBO. It's one of them. It's it's a cable show, but uh, he plays his own twin brother in it, and it's. It's phenomenal. It's like it's like Louis C.K. levels of just tragic comedy that is it's it's written in a way that because it's you know, it's one of those good shows. There's no laugh track or silliness like it's a proper show. But I don't know. You got to check it out. It's very hard to describe even because it's so original. It's something. Right. Like, well, that's really, what I really like. Yeah. Yeah. That, just, yeah. Do, so, do something original. Like I'm laughing while I'm watching it. But then when the episode's over, I am in tears at what I just watched. Like it ends in such it's so it's just tragedy after tragedy, but it's fucking hilarious. Nice. And I it's really hard to to, you know, coincide the two and <laughs> You're singing the song of my people, right? Yeah, I think you'd like it, man. I think you'd dig it. But uh before we let you go, let's uh quickly pump up the fact that uh this time we're both guests, I believe, at Motor City Comic Con. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah, I can't believe they're letting me in as a guest. What? Well, <laughs> you've, you've earned your spot. I, I, you know, I, I love the con, man. This is, I'm proud to. This is my third year going. Uh, it's an amazing experience. It's what I look forward to every year, and you know, it's, it's definitely beyond just being the con. I get to go and see a bunch of family for the weekend. Absolutely, so. you know, I'm doing a panel as well. I'm just putting that out there. 
Of course, of course. Do you know when your panel is yet? The schedule's not updated, is it? Yet, so I would have to. Uh, yeah. And there's a bunch going on. You got your panel. There's going to be a podcasting panel going on. Uh, you know, there's going to be lots of mad, cool stuff. I, I, prom- uh, I promise. You know, in the event that uh, we panel together, or you come to my panel, or whatever. That depending how this works, so we got to figure oh, out I'll details. But I, I promise, I will not accidentally shower you with Fago this year. <laughs> I'm just it's going okay, on I'm record by now. saying that. I'm prepared. Be I've been through that. <laughs> you can always fango me, but <laughs> well, still, like, people still ask me about that, about the fact that, like, you guys staged that. Oh, yeah. I wish no, we did. It would have no. been even funny. If I'd staged it, I wouldn't have used something quite as sticky as fango. I'll put it that agreed. Way. Agreed. Ah, <laughs> uh, Dirk Manning, I love you, much, sir. Much, much love, but thank you. Tell the people where they can find you in the interweb universe. Uh, DirkManning.com is my website. I am on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, at Dirk Manning. And I would say right now the big thing is I would encourage people to go to Kickstarter and look up uh, Dirk Manning or look up Tales of Mystery, R-H. Yeah, he needs the help, kids. Get well, no, I mean, it really. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, man, listen. Uh, <laughs> you know, we got funded. Right. Okay. So we're funded. Right. Happy day. At this point, I I do not make more money by how much we get funded because right. by virtue of how many stretch goal things we are giving people. I think it's right, very, right. very important for people to understand that at this point. Yeah. It's just a party right. giveaway good stuff for more money at this point. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. a straight up party. If you needed more, you would have asked right, for more. Right. It's a matter of, you know, if that many people want to support on top of it, well, hell yeah, let's have a party and give away right. some stuff. And quite stuff. frankly, I'll be honest with you, I only asked for about half of what my costs would be in publishing the book for the Kickstarter. Because yeah. it's a Kickstarter. It is not a GoFundMe. You know, right, right, Kickstarter. Right, right. Help, yeah. help, help out a little bit. You can get some if – you, if you commit to pre-ordering this book through a pledge – You'll get uh, a Kickstarter exclusive hardcover edition of the book, and you get some other cool swag as a thank you. So we're funded now. Right. Now it's like now everyone with the Kickstarter gets six free art prints. We're doing these six Devils Do character crossover art prints. Anybody that orders a hardcover gets six art prints. Glow in the dark temporary mystery tattoos, uh, <laughs> which is one of my favorite things. Yeah, because uh, like the first wave of stretch goals was all Devils Do cross promotion stuff. So you get pinups right. by each of the original character series artists. Of their character and mystery character. So you got Daniel Leister with a, a Lord of Gore pinup. You get uh, Shara Jackson did a Galaxies for Hire. Kirilyn Smith did a Plume. Uh, I haven't, I don't know if I've officially, officially announced these yet. Uh, we'll get a, um, we have the, we did announce the, the, the Nightmare World print. Then you have the, uh, the two that we've officially announced yet are a Mercy Sparks print by Matt Merhoff. And then a score year sprint by Ashley. So you get all those for free with them. Yeah, that's that's, that's pretty, pretty sweet, sweet. dude. Now, <laughs> it's like you're gonna be sending people well, loot. Well that's crates. it. You get oh, basically the mystery loot, loot crate at this point. Then I'm gonna We actually we, we might be we might yeah, be onto something. We should write that down actually. Now you get the glow in the dark temporary mystery tattoos. So you get the mystery sigil like in the cover of volume two, like a glow in the dark tattoo like that. Uh, yeah. We're about to unlock the book plate, so you'll get a book plate signed by me in every hardcover. Then from there, Seth will sign them. Seth will do an original head sketch in them. Then if we get to 20000 everyone will get a 
Kickstarter exclusive 16 page minimum bonus comic, mystery comic, a crossover with Touching Evil, written by me, fully Shut fully up. No, 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 no. Yeah. Really? Really? You're going to cross over? Yeah, no. it's done. The, the, yeah. If we get that the book is retardedly cool. For free. Kickstarter exclusive, I might add. That's it. You only get it that way. Wow. That is badass. Uh, kids out there, if you don't know Touching Evil, Dan yeah. Doherty, yeah. <laughs> you don't know what you're missing. Yeah. A mystery <laughs> Touching Evil 16-page crossover comic. That's a bit, and that's if you get 20, to what? 20,000. And what's it at right now? Uh, I try to make it a point not to look every five minutes so it doesn't drive me uh Well, look right, now. look right now. Live, we are at, I think we're just below 15. We're closing in on it. Let me look. We are at 14,576. So we're, we're less than $500 away from the art, per, uh, the, the signed book plate. All right. And how many days? 18 left? days. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> kids, get out there and pledge because that book needs to happen. I have a feeling it'll happen no matter what. Eventually, now that it's been said. Yeah, well, that, a lot of people. But if it takes people, our five they, grand to that, do it, like holy crap! Like, well, yeah, we get twenty thousand. I can afford to because at that point, I can afford to give everyone that. But you're right; it's just a big party at this point. But the biggest preconception I feel like I always have to argue with, explain to people is like, look. I'm not talking to you with fifteen thousand dollars in my pocket, you know, lighting lighting dollar bills on fire, you know. Oh, it's oh, like shit. that's how many books, that's how many hardcovers we're printing off for people, and we're making the coffee right. mugs, and we're making the coffee, and we're doing all this. I mean, for God's sake, we're doing a pledge level where you can get a ceramic engraved mystery coffee mug, a bag of Dirk's Perk coffee with your hardcover, and it's all Kickstarter <laughs> that's exclusive. Too cool. Yeah. You'll appreciate this. Uh, volume three of the Toronto Comics yeah. Anthology is yeah, coming out yeah. soon. Uh, it was just printed off and everything. Uh, Andrew Stevenson, who's like the main lead editor on the project, uh, there's a group on Facebook and, you know, all the artists, everybody are involved. They're part of the group. He let me in because they were on the show and, you know, just friends sure, of the sure. friends and stuff. But what he does is he breaks down publicly in that group every cent of the Kickstarter, of the budget, of the printing, of the this, of the that. He'll put up his credit card and be like, here's my credit card receipt that I bought this, so I'll be paying it back with money from this. Yeah. And he lays every little bit of it out. It's so impressive. And just to share, just so people see how it works, and it's the biggest bit of transparency I've ever seen. And uh you know, kudos to that guy for doing that. And uh, everybody, get out there. I'll try and if I hoping I'm getting my hands on one or in a couple soon uh, before I head to Michigan. In which case, I'll I'll get you one. But we'll get you one. I would love to see way. it. Yeah. In, in in fact, that's one of those things where um, I was torn because I know some of the other Devils Do campaigns have done that stuff where they've shown exactly. It's like where. Yeah. Like, he didn't do it publicly. Right. This was just for the group, right? Like, just everybody involved was allowed to see every cent. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And, and I was, uh, I, I was torn about, like, whether or not to show that or not. And, and the reason I didn't was because the page was getting so cluttered with all of the, uh, quite frankly, other awards and stuff like that that we were offering anyway. So. Right, right. So I was sure. No, no. Look, it's all know, good. Yeah, newsflash. Yeah. This is how much we get here. This is how much we get here, you know. So yeah, yeah, it's just nice when you see a project that big, and you know, people are just being honest and sharing. And I just, I just thought you'd appreciate. Oh that, yeah, you know? totally, totally, cool totally, when, totally, totally. You know, 
Good times. Well, uh, let's round this out. I know you've got more to do this afternoon. Thank you so much for taking more time to sit and chill with me. Oh, absolutely. I'm very much looking forward to Motor City. I encourage everyone to check out the Tales of Mystery, uh, you know, Kickstarter, check that out, things like that. Um, and see if that'd be something you're into, you know, and, uh, we'll, uh, I will see you at, uh, at Motor City, my friend. I can't wait. You. Definitely will. Thank you so much, sir. Kids, Motor City Comic Con next goddamn weekend. Go see Dirk. Go see me. Come make some pod. Buy some comics. It's going to be good times indeed. Go check out Dirk's Kickstarter, Toronto Comics Volume Three. So many good things by everybody. Oh, it's it's good times indeed. But uh, as far as that goes, kids, that's all we are going to have this week on an elegant weapon. Take it easy.